Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon, or you can also find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in helping to keep this show alive. And also a massive thanks to all of you who have supported the podcast in this way up until now. Um, Your support is massively appreciated. Now let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I wanted to continue our history of magical talismans and amulets by talking a little bit about magic and talismans from ancient Greece and Rome. As I mentioned before, magic has been an inherent part of human history for thousands of years, and the societies of Greece and Rome were not exempt from this influence. Magic profoundly impacted these societies playing a really significant role in various aspects of life, from politics and medicine to personal relationships. And in this episode, we will be talking a little bit about its role during that period and also the usage of magical talismans and amulets within these cultures. In ancient Greece and Rome, magic was primarily linked to religion and how effective it could be often depended on the appeals to various different deities, gods and goddesses. Despite some of its quite controversial methods that you read about, magic also enjoyed quite a unique cultural standing during these societies, so it was neither wholly accepted nor outrightly condemned. Although there were regulations limiting magical practices, magic held a very strong, powerful allure for the people of those times and was privately practised across all different social levels and parts of society. And it was really a massive part of the the narrative of myths and legends of the time. So, for example, in Greek mythology, We see numerous examples of witches and magicians, including the famous Circe, whose potent potions are meant to have tricked the crafty Odysseus. We also have Medea, who was an enchantress who possessed the gift of foresight, who is meant to have aided Jason and the Argonauts in retrieving the Golden Fleece from her father. Magic was also perceived as being an integral part of religious life and people believed that its powers could be employed to influence and solicit the assistance of gods and goddesses. Greek magic is mainly classified into two different categories. So we have goetia, also known as thaumaturgy, and we have theurgy. Goetia, or thaumaturgy, is usually defined as being the art of manipulating supernatural powers for personal gain or to induce changes in the material world, whereas theurgy 
on the other hand, typically referred to any magical practice that would be aimed at elevating the consciousness, the soul or the intellect of the practitioner to reach higher realms. And despite their apparent separation, any um, skilled magician of that period would need to be proficient in both practices. And Dr. Stephen Skinner um, encapsulates the differences between these two approaches well in his writings when he wrote the following, I quote, The theogists were concerned with purifying and raising the consciousness of individual practitioners to the point where they could have direct communication with the gods. The theogists were, in a sense, the inheritors of the ancient Greek mysteries which aimed to introduce the candidate directly to the gods. So it's effectively a kind of communion. You're becoming one with the god, with that divine power. Contrastingly, Skinner um, describes the practices of practitioners of Goetia as follows. The practitioner of Goetia, on the other hand, attempts to bring demons into the physical plane and to manifest them or their effects. The relationship of the practitioners or theogia to practitioners of Goetia is that both attempt to invoke, evoke a spiritual creature, be it god, diamond, angel or demon. The teletai priest does it for the benefit of the client's immortal soul, while the goes does it to benefit the client's material desires. That's a quote from Stephen Skinner, discussing the differences between theurgy and thaumaturgy. The conquests of ancient Egypt by Alexander the Great in November 332 BC really profoundly influenced the evolution of magic and the development of hermetic thought. And the establishment of the Great Library in Alexandria by Alexander's successor Ptolemy Soter around 283 BC really served as a hub for philosophers, magicians, priests and scientists. Numerous manuscripts and maps of the world were transcribed and stored within this amazing library and Alexandria was a city of immense power and spiritual influence where you get this melting pot of Egypt and Greece's ancient wisdom merging with the Near Eastern uh, mystical traditions. And it's here that the Hermetic teachings are begin to be born from this kind of melting pot, um, particularly emphasising the kind of unity of all things and the divine nature of the human soul. And philosophers, scholars and mystics who sought to unravel the, myst- the universe's secrets and attain spiritual enlightenment, embraced these teachings in Alexandria. And it also was the home of the renowned Library of Alexandria, which was a beacon of esoteric and hermetic knowledge, housing thousands of volumes on alchemy, astrology and magic, and it welcomed seekers of all faith, um, offering a space to study but also kind of explore the the mysteries of the universe. In ancient Greece, as in ancient Egypt, talismans and amulets were widely used and were commonly believed to possess the power to fend off evil spirits, 
uh, heal, heal illnesses and also bring good fortune. And these talismans often would incorporate different magical symbols. So you see the Eye of Horus, which obviously we talked about in the ancient Egyptian episode, and also the Caduceus as well, which is the kind of twining snakes. They're often constructed from different materials as well. So we get parchment, we get lead. We also get occasionally precious metals such as gold and silver and also precious stones. Similarly in Rome, magic was also practiced at both the lower and the upper upper classes and was part of everyday life. And Roman magic was heavily influenced by the Greek tradition and employed many of the same practices. However, the Romans placed a higher emphasis on the use of magic for practical purposes. One of the interesting features of talismans and amulets from this period is the mystical inscriptions found on them. And these inscriptions often blend distorted Egyptian and Greek languages, incorporating numerous what is known as barbarous names of power, which are composed of often indecipherable names containing lots of different vowels and they're often arranged in different shapes so you see like triangles where it starts with a single letter and then it kind of descend from there designed to either attract or repel a specific force and these barbarous names have been used since time immemorial particularly in incantations where the original language remained unintelligible and they were also integrated into Jewish, Hellenistic, Gnostic, Essene and Christian law and magic. An example from the Harris Greco-Egyptian magical text uh, goes as follows. And I won't read the whole thing because it's going to be very difficult. But um, Adiro, Adasana, Adiraga, Adesana, Samue, Matemu, Adesana, Samu, Akamo, Adesana. So there's lots of these kind of long names that are difficult to difficult to kind of translate into anything that we kind of understand today. Although the exact origin and meaning of these names is relatively unclear, a lot of scholars have suggested that they, their use may be connected to the unique powers of the seven vowels in the Greek language which were believed to represent seven celestial forces corresponding to different divine forces accessible through sound and vibrations. So the seven vowels were said to correspond to the seven planets and their use in magical practice was thought to influence these planets with each vowel essentially serving as a key to unlock the universe's secrets. Manly P. Hall, um, who wrote huge volume of material um, explores this idea in his text the secret teachings of all ages where he discusses these correspondences by saying the greek initiates recognized fundamental relationship between the individual heavens or spheres of the seven planets and the seven sacred vowels when these seven heavens sing together they produce a perfect harmony which ascends as everlasting praise to the throne of the Creator. Unfortunately, the specific connections or correspondences used by these initiates has never been written down, because it would have probably been an oral tradition. So 
Unfortunately, future generations have kind of been left to guess which vowel represents which planet. However, each vowel was associated with a specific meaning and could be used in various different magical operations. So, for example, alpha would often signify the beginning and was used in spells for starting new projects or ventures. Epsilon was associated with harmony and balance and could be used in spells for healing or resolving conflicts. The ancient Greeks also believed that vowels had specific properties and characteristics that made them more or less effective in different types of magic. So alpha and omega were considered to be the most potent vowels representing the beginning and the end of all things. Omicron was also viewed as being weaker since it represented like a midpoint or a neutral position and practitioners would often chant or recite the vowels in specific sequences or combinations, sometimes in conjunction with other symbols or incantations to use the vowels in magic. The belief was that the cosmos was almost a bit like a, a musical instrument really, so each planet moves in harmony according to a divine law and with the right sound, the right tonality and the right vowel, the magician can basically tap into that force and cause a vibration as per the saying, as above, so below. These long names, frequently comprising just vowels, um, would have been recited or sung during magical ceremonies and religious rites and would serve as kind of ma real kind of powerful magical tools. And whilst we don't know the exact kind of um, origins and some of the correspondences of them, uh, you do find if you do you use uh, particularly the vibration of magical names, so for example in the Kabbalistic tradition it's, it's a common thing that you see where you'll vibrate a specific god name, you do find that through vibrating a divine name, um, you, it does actually begin to elevate your consciousness using them and can act as a tool for magical transformation. As Alistair Crowley wrote in his Magic in Theory and Practice, Long strings of formidable words which roar and moan through so many conjurations have a real effect in exalting the magician's consciousness to the proper pitch. And that's from Crowley's Magic in Theory and Practice. Um, we find a lot of these barbarous names of power in lots of different texts as well. So, for example, in the Orphic Hymns, which are a set of hymns attributed to Orpheus, the mythical poet. And these are used in lots of different religious ceremonies and serve to really invoke the divinities of the Greek pantheon. Um, so you find lots of examples of names like Persephone and Zagreus, um, which, you know, we don't, they obviously meant something back in those days, but we're not, we still don't know exactly what they meant now. Also in the PGM, um, there's an, which is an incredible collection of magical texts uh, known as the Papyri Greece Magicae, or PGM for short. This dates back to most likely the period between the 2nd century BCE to the 5th century CE. And this also provides another source of these names. The PGM includes rituals such as PGM 
96172, which is the stele of Jew, the hieroglyphics, in his letter, which has also been kind of adapted into um, a version called the Headless Rite. This is often used by different occultists today, and it's sometimes also incorporated into the abramelin operation by magicians. Um, and in this text, you see names like Ablanafalmba, um, Io Sabayo, etc. There's lots of other ones as well that are difficult, difficult to pronounce, but experts are still kind of working on tracing their origins. An example of this this particular ritual, which is, is really beautiful, um, and I'll read a little section of it for you. I summon you, headless one, who created earth and heaven, who created night and day, you who created light and darkness. You are Osonophris, whom none has ever seen. You are Iapas, you are Iapos. You have distinguished the just and the unjust. You have made female and male. You have revealed seed and fruits. You have made men love each other and hate each other. I am Moses, your prophet, to whom you have transmitted your mysteries celebrated by Israel. You have revealed the moist and the dry, and all nourishment, hear me. I am the messenger of Pharaoh, Osinophorus. This is your true name, which has been handed down to the prophets of Israel. Hear me. And then it goes into a series of long... Um, Long barbarous names as Arbathio, Raibat, Athelbersheth, Arablatha, Albo, Abanfiki, Kitakasko, Abe, Aot, Iao. Hearken to me and turn back this demon. Um, that's an example of it. As I said, it's quite hard to pronounce some of these, some of these names, and we still don't really know exactly how they would have been pronounced. Um, another another place where you find these as well is in uh, the Chaldean Oracles, which are a collection of mystical texts attributed to the philosopher Zoroastra from the 3rd to the 6th century CE. And these texts were used by the Neoplatonic philosophers of the late Roman Empire and feature many invocations and prayers that include barbarous names of power, such as Zarazanap. Um, Enfanta and Ophiel and these are like stunning texts worth reading um, a lot of the golden dawn rituals kind of um, used material from the Chaldean oracles as well um, for example a quote from the text contains a powerful message about the the limitations of the material world and the importance of focusing on higher truths and I quote Direct not thy mind to the vast surfaces of the earth, for the plant of truth grows not upon the ground, nor the measures, motions of the sun collecting rules. For he is carried by the eternal will of the Father and not for your sake alone. Dismiss the impetuous course of the moon, for she moveth always by the power of necessity. The progression of the stars was not generated for your sake. The wide aerial flight of birds gives no, tr no true knowledge, nor the dissection of the entrails of victims. They are all mere toys, the basis of mercenary fraud. Flee from these if you would enter the sacred paradise of piety, 
where virtue, wisdom and equity are assembled. That's from the Chaldean oracles. Although the original texts may have been lost, fragments of quotes and commentary from many Neoplatonist writers have survived, and these fragments are likely part of a single mystery poem, which potentially would have been compiled or received through trance by Julian the Chaldean or his son Julian the Theogist in the 2nd century CE. Um, and later Neoplatonists like Iambilicus and Proclus um, really highly rated the Chaldean oracles. Another um, source of these kind of barbarous names is the Hermetic Corpus. Um, so beside the Chaldean oracles, there's also a collection of ancient philosophical and religious texts called the Hermetic Corpus. And these texts are attributed kind of mythologically, really, um, to Hermes Trismegistus, who is a legendary figure that combines the god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. And these texts were believed to be written in Hellenistic Egypt between the 1st and the 3rd century CE. But some could be even older. The Hermetic Corpus includes a range of different topics, including you know, cosmology, theology, alchemy and astrology. And it also presents a worldview that combines elements of Egyptian, Greek and Jewish mysticism. The texts were influential in developing Western esotericism and have been studied and translated by scholars for centuries. Some of the most famous works in the Hermetic Corpus include the Pymandus, the Asclepius and the Emerald Tablet. And these texts were used by the Neoplatonic philosophers of the late Roman Empire and feature many invocations that include barbarous names of power. So we've looked at some of the background and themes of magical practice in ancient Greece and Rome. So now we will examine how some of these themes were applied to magical talismans and amulets. As mentioned before, ancient Greece and Rome saw a real widespread use of protective charms known as phylacteries. And these were basically personal objects that would be carried or worn as a ward against evil influences or misfortune. They would have been crafted from a variety of different materials such as leather, cloth, metal and could often enclose a lot of different items. And they'd also include invocations that would be inscribed onto metal or parchment often as well. Um, and these phylacteries were typically concealed within a pouch or a container and were believed to provide the wearer with protection or healing capabilities. Or they could be to kind of ward off the evil eye or ward off sickness, or it could be to promote fertility. One common variety of phylactery that's often encountered during different sort of archaeological excavations is constructed from thin sheets of metal or paper and you can see some of these in the British Museum in London uh, which has been like meticulously folded and then placed within a cylindrical casing or a similar receptacle and then these would be kept close by by their owner for their protective value. To kind of maintain the efficacy the kind of magical power of these charms 
it was believed that you should kind of keep them hidden from view. And people also believed if the contents were exposed to the gaze of others, the phylactery would lose its power. The magic was enshrined within the names etched within these items, which adds a layer of secrecy to the objects. And although you'd probably see a lot of people wearing them, you might know that your neighbour walks around wearing a, a phylactery, you wouldn't actually know what its purpose was. That would only be known to the owner. If we go to Rome, um, the Museum of the Written Word in Rome has lots of examples of phylacteries as well. And although a lot of them would have been tightly sealed, some of them have been unwrapped um, to allow academics and scholars to actually study their, their contents. Um, and a good example of these is the golden tablets of the Orphics which were placed inside small boxes and then securely wrapped before being placed with the body of someone who had passed away. Um, the idea being that the golden tablet phylactery would basically provide the departed with a, a mystical shield to aid them on their journey through the underworld, or as it was Hades, as it was known. The Greek magical papyri, um, PGM 579, also talks about a phylactery that was designed to serve as a talismanic defence against spiritual entities such as demons and ghosts and earthly afflictions such as disease and suffering. And I'm going to put some links to some of these images in the show notes. And this phylactery was inscribed on, on metal and it was powered by the divine seal of the great god, offering protection to the individual named within the mystical circle of the inscription. Really, really crucial to the seal is there's a depiction of Canubis, who is a lion-headed serpent symbolising time, and who is also associated with the divine entities of Abraxas and Agathus Diamond, both associated with healing and protection. Um, and the potency of this particular phylactery was also tied to the names and the spells inscribed within it. So any errors or omissions could potentially kind of weaken its protective power. In her book, Reading Magical Drawings in the Greek Magical Pyre, uh, Raquel Martin Hernandez um, talks about a specific method for restoring the original inscription of this particular phylactery and the rest restoration would basically involve writing the formula around the image of Canubis in a counterclockwise direction and this formula would basically bolster the power of the phylactery to guard against um, a wide range of spiritual afflictions. The inscription on it read a phylactery, a bodyguard against diamonds, against phantasms, against every sickness and suffering, to be written on a leaf of gold or silver or tin or hieratic papyrus. When worn, it works mightily, for it is the name of the power of the great God and his seal, and it is as follows. It then talks about these barbarous names of power, which I'm not going to read out. These are the names, the figure is like this. Let the snake be biting its tail, the names being written inside the circle made by the snake and the characters thus. Uh, and that's discussing this uh, 
phylactery from the PGM 579 and how it's kind of done. And you can see an image of that in the show notes as well. It's in, what's interesting about that as well is obviously it does give you kind of different choices as well, depending on your budget. So, um, you know, you can, do, you can make it in gold, silver, tin or papyrus. So, you know, there's, there's a choice for every... Um, for every wallet available there which kind of shows you the uh, how kind of available and prevalent this would have been and it was kind of you could actually choose what option would suit you the best the protective um capabilities of this phylactery were obviously also fortified by the invocation of the magical names and the symbolism of the seven planetary symbols which are also intended to safeguard the physical body and the spiritual essence of the wearer. And after the phylactery was sanctified through a consecration ritual, it would be worn by the person who was seeking the protection. Ancient Greece and Rome um, both fostered kind of rich traditions of amulets used as protective objects believed to ward off harm and bring good fortune to those who possess them. Um, And another example from ancient Greece was the Gorgonian. And this was a talisman that bore the visage or the image of the Gorgon Medusa and was thought to be able to deflect evil spirits and safeguard its owner. As Posanius, an ancient Greek traveller, once wrote... The Gorgonian is possessed by the goddess Athena and is a delight to humans and signifies the approach of battle. So not surprisingly, this was very popular with soldiers at the time who would often decorate their shields and helmets and other gear with it. Almost like the weapon or their shield would become a talisman or an amulet um, by itself through having that magical charged symbol on it. If we go to Rome now, um, we also find protective amulets taking many different forms as well, including, you know, ones made out of gemstone, animal parts, and even symbolic depictions like the the phallus, which was revered for good luck and fertility. But also the Romans held a special place for uh, what was known as a bulla, which was a locket worn by birth from birth by boys until they had transitioned into adulthood and the bulla was really more than a piece of jewelry it was kind of a charm believed to shield its wearers from evil spirits and contained a charm amulet some of these were also made with different shapes and figures um, as well so a case in point is a talisman housed in the British Museum in London that hails from the second century and this was crafted from green jasper and and there's it's a really cool image um, depicting the god Abraxas who is a potent figure in Gnostic texts for his ability to control cosmic forces and the talisman was inscribed with the Greek letters of Abraxas's name alongside depictions of a rooster's head a serpent tail and a human body it was also common for soldiers in rome to carry talismans and amulets into battle um, hoping for them to protect them Um, so many such amulets portray foot soldiers vanquishing demons Um, 
Another really interesting practice of this time was the creation of talismanic shapes. So for example, as I mentioned earlier, a triangle with letters arranged in decreasing or increasing orders was believed to ward off negativity or bring in positive energy into that person's life. But in both Greece and Rome, amulets and tal talismans weren't just objects of protection or good luck, but they're also to control, to curse and to bind others. And these societies had a system of casting curses via inscribed lead tablets known as catadecimoi, or binding formulas. And these acted a little bit similar to voodoo dolls in a way. These cursed tablets were often thin pieces of lead that bore the victim's name. And although the forms also included wax, clay and wood, the, some of the most famous ones that we found have been lead. The process of cursed, cursing would involve inscribing the tablet, folding it, sealing it, and then they'd puncture it with a nail. And it was typically buried in locations that would offer quick routes to the underworld. So you'd get caves wells, um, graveyards as well, as these were seen as these transitionary places that were perfect for reaching the gods like Hades or Hecate and Hermes, who was kind of thought to carry out these curses. And many of these tablets have been found across the classical world, um, from Athens in Greece to Rome and also even in England in Bath. In, in southwest England near Bristol. Tracing back to the 5th century BC in Athens, these tablets also carried powerful invocations and prayers, often calling upon the gods or goddesses to bind their victims. And the origin of this binding concept remind, rem, kind of remains uncertain, but it's suggested to have come from Greek mythology where basically gods could bind or restrain one another but not be bound by humans. It's thought that there was actually jobs of people who would be professional curse writers as well who'd write on these tablets and sell their services for a fee. An example of one of these is the Bath Curse Tablets from the UK. Um, and this collection has like over 130 small folded lead tablets that was found near a sacred spring um, at the Roman baths in Bath in England. And these Latin inscribed tablets dating back to the 2nd to 4th century AD invoke the names of Roman gods, particularly Sulis, Minerva, to cast curses on individuals who had wronged their creators. And the curses varied from causing minor misfortunes like bad luck or it could be impotence to actually invoking physical harm or even you know illness and and death so for example we have the following may the goddess Sulis inflict death upon senecianus and may he never receive health until he is given to the goddess what he has stolen another one writes dulcianus i curse you and your life and your limb and your blood and mind and your gods, and your possessions and your marriage, and your joys and your status and your progeny, and your house and your fields, 
may you have nothing. And that's another one from Tabula Sulis 32. Um, apart from these obviously pretty nasty black, dark, you know, dark curses, um, other examples of these also include love spells. And these were written by individuals who were hoping to attract a particular person to fall in love with them. So, for example, there's an Athenian one from the 4th century that reads, I bind you, Demetrius, with this love spell that you will not go to another woman except Philista, whom I love. Another example of such binding spells is from the University of Michigan's papyrus collection dated to the 2nd century, and it was written by someone who, who was named Alorion, who was clearly besotted with a woman called Copria. And the text of this one reads, I deposit this binding spell with you, Chthonian god Pluto and Kore, bind Copria, whom her mother Tasis bore, the hair of whose head you have, for Alurian, whom his mother named Copria bore, that she may not submit, nor gratify another youth, or another man except Alurian only, whom his mother named Copria bore. That's a love spell. As well as being used for curses and love spells, these ta these ab tablets were also used to seek justice or legal action against someone who had wronged the user. So an example of a cursed tablet comes from the 3rd century BC found in Athens, which reads, I invoke you, gods of the underworld, and I bind you with a curse. Phylon, son of Phylon, and Athedonora, daughter of Phylon, until they give me back the garment they took from me. And as you can see with those, um, I'm not suggesting going out and doing curses, but um, they are quite specific. They even mention the, you know, their parent, their mother, their father, uh, etc. So there's no kind of confusion about who is who the who the curse is going to go towards um you know with a mix up of names and things like that with the emergence of christianity during the 2nd and 3rd centuries um various different versions of gnostic christianity were declared heretical and banned so the council of laodicea in 355 ce proclaimed that priests and clerks should not practice enchantment, mathematics, astrology, or even create amulets. Um, and individuals who use such amulets were also meant to be cast out of the church. Um, however, despite this decree, the popularity of talismans and amulets continued, often featuring Christian-themed inscriptions that invoked Christ and the angels, so some really key examples include there's pieces in the Kelsey Museum and early Christian symbols such as the Cairo and the fish symbol. The former, uh, the Cairo symbol is a monogram of the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ, while the latter, the fish symbol, also served as a secret symbol of the faith with the Greek word for ictis being an acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. By the Middle Ages, talismans had, had kind of adapted to be a kind of really, really uh, important aspect. Um, and 
symbolizing really kind of powerful tools against evil and the catholic church even endorsed using talismans and amulets often braced blessed by priests to leave to ward off evil spirits and shield the wearer from harm so renowned saints like saint john chrysostom and saint thomas aquinas um, discussed the power of these relics for those who possess relics have no fear of death, no terror of demons and no fear of any danger. And also, by the power of the relics of the saints, God works miracles and heals the sick. Relics, especially those associated with miracles, um, such as you know the bones and artefacts of saints, held really immense power and were particularly venerated. And churches that housed these relics would often become worship centres and attract millions of pilgrims. Richard Kieghefer, in his book Unquiet Souls, um, gives an, a, quite a good insight into this error when he wrote the following. The trade in relics was an important source of income for the church and many bishops and abbots were willing to pay large sums of money to acquire them. These relics were sold at exorbitant prices and unscrupulous merchants sometimes passed off fake relics as genuine to make a profit. Obviously one of the most famous religious talismans from this period is the True Cross, which was kind of believed to be the cross upon which Christ was crucified and uh, was meant to have been discovered by Saint Helena, um, Emperor Constantine's mother in the 4th century. Um, but we have lots of other examples of these kind of talismanic magical objects that were venerated across Europe during this period. So, for example, there's the Holy Lance, which was known as the Spear of Destiny. And this was the lance that was supposedly pierced Jesus Christ during his crucifixion. We also have the Shroud of Turin, which is a linen cloth that bore the image of a man believed to be Jesus and is still kind of debated about being a fake. Um, we don't really know. The crown of thorns as well, um, that was believed to have been worn by Jesus during his passion and was revered in various different places. Uh, we also have the holy prepuch. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, which is a lovely one because that's the actual foreskin. Uh, removed from Jesus during his circumcision um, and was preserved as a relic. And there's also the feather of the Holy Spirit, which is meant to have come from the wing of the Holy Spirit and was given to Thomas Aquinas as a symbol of his divine inspiration. So as you can see, a lot of the ideas of ancient Greece uh, and Rome, and then before that, obviously, um, Egypt, filter and transition into the rise of Christianity and the same kind of magical ideas about a physical object being imbued with spiritual power and intention um, and actually having a an effect on the material plane um, continue through the ages and will develop over the next coming centuries. That's all we have time for in this episode. However, in the next episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the history of magical talismans and amulets by looking at the magical talismans of 
the Arab world and Arabia. So if you've enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, then please stay tuned. I'd like to finish the episode with a poem by Swinburne, who is obviously not from ancient Greece and Rome, but uh, has a quite a nice sort of classical style to his writing. This is Relics by Swinburne. This flower that smells of honey and the sea, white loristine, seems in my hand to be a white star made of memory long ago, lit in the heaven of dear times dead to me. A star out of the skies love used to know, here held in hand, a stray left yet to show. What flowers my heart was full of in those days, that are long since gone down memory's flow. Dead memory that revives on doubtful ways, half hearkening what the buried season says, out of the world of the unapparent dead, where the lost Aprils are and the lost Mays. Flower once I knew thy star-white brethren bled, nigh where the last of all the land made heads, against the sea a keen-faced promontory, flowers on salt wind and sprinkled sea-dews fed. Their hearts were glad of the free place's glory, the wind that sang them from all his stormy story, had talked all winter to the sleepless spray, and as the seas their hues were hard and hoary. <laughs>